Hello and welcome to the Positive Choices Podcast, where we give you brain-based strategies to help children make positive choices, solve social problems, regulate strong feelings, and thrive. I'm Lindsay Keeley, a social and emotional learning specialist and your host. When you make a mistake, what do you tell yourself? Are you kind and nurturing to yourself, reminding yourself that it's okay to make mistakes and that you can try better next time? Or are you more of a harsh drill sergeant, putting yourself down and making you feel like you're not worthy of love and belonging? Well, in this episode, we are going to talk about ways that you can have a more compassionate approach towards yourself and how doing this ultimately helps you become more compassionate to those around you. Let's get started. Hi there. Thanks so much for tuning in today. This week, I'm really eager to talk about self-compassion because it goes so well with what we talked about last week, which was how to be a new learner. We talked about how it can be awkward and wobbly when you do something new, but ultimately you can give yourself grace. You can try your best. You can create space for those uncomfortable feelings, do a body check-in, and ultimately Tell yourself that it's okay to be new at something and to put all of it into perspective. And while all those things are good tips and they certainly are helpful when you're new at something, today I want to talk about what to do when things don't go as planned. How do you respond to a situation where maybe you acted outside of your values? Maybe you really value being kind and nurturing, and yet your brain was so mixed up, you were so upset based on your circumstances that maybe you snapped at your partner. Maybe you said something you regret. Maybe you were kind of grumpy, (laughs) grumpy pants, and you weren't as loving and patient with your students or children. And so what do you do with that? Because when you are new at something, it is a lot more likely that you're going to experience more emotional dysregulation. There's things that you don't know how to do yet, and that can cause your brain to feel a little mixed up. And so how do we respond to ourselves when we don't act our best selves? And in order to approach this topic, I want to talk about self-compassion. And self-compassion is something that's being more and more researched and recent days. And the person who is the ultimate expert on it is Kristen Neff. Dr. Kristen Neff received her doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley, and she's currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas, Austin. She's been recognized as one of the most influential research psychologists, and in addition to writing numerous academic articles and books on the topic of self-compassion, she has an excellent TED Talk that has a lot of views that talks about how we can show up for ourselves in a way that allows us to be more compassionate and kind towards others. And this is something I want to say from the very get-go is that being self-compassionate is not about being selfish. Now it has the word self in it. And even in one of her interviews, Kristen Neff says that can almost be misleading. In fact, she rather wishes that she had called it inner compassion turning compassion towards yourself, and then inter-compassion, having that compassion towards others. But what compassion means is to suffer with. It has the roots in Latin. So self-compassion is to suffer with yourself, being present for your own suffering. And then when you're able to be compassionate towards someone else, you're being present with someone who is actually suffering in, in whatever manner that they are. And so When we talk about compassion, there is an inherent connectedness when we think about that concept. So something that Kristen specifically says is that self-compassion is not really self-focused at all, even though the word self is in there. It's basically just saying, hey, life is difficult for everyone. 
All human beings make mistakes. I am not alone. And that ability to not feel alone is one of the most powerful aspects of self-compassion. And that's something that is so important to remind ourselves, I am not alone. And then as we're more compassionate towards our partner, people at work, and especially our children, to let them know you are not alone. Other people struggle with this very thing. Other people make this mistake. When you're able to be really vulnerable and share ways that you've made a mistake, let's say your child wasn't kind at school and they said something that was not appropriate or not kind to someone, and then you get a lovely phone call from the teacher of your child's class saying, this is what happened. How can we approach this child? Acknowledge that this happens to everyone. It's normal to make mistakes and to say things that aren't kind, maybe even identify a time when you did this, when you said something that you later regretted saying. You don't have to get into all the specifics, of course, but just connecting with that, saying I'm right here with you, and then coming up with a plan for next time because it is important to be with that suffering, to practice that self-compassion, extend that to your child, be compassionate and with them. And also it's important to have that second part, the what next? How do we mobilize and really have that next piece where we're saying, what can I do to fix this? Or how can I make a difference? So having a child working through, okay, yes, this is normal. This is what happened. And how can you make it better? You're mobilizing action. You're working to make a difference. So that way it's not stagnant. It has some directionality and it goes back to that interconnectedness that comes with compassion. It's being connected to others and just as mistakes and difficult things can happen in relationships, we call those ruptures. That's what Dan Siegel calls them. Just as ruptures can occur in relationships, repairs can also occur. That's when um, difficulty has happened. Maybe you've said things you regret. That's a rupture. And then you come back and you say, I'd like to repair this. I want to apologize and try again or do better next time. And so that's so important to not only acknowledge, yes, there is suffering. Yes, this is difficult. I'm not alone. And what can I do next time? As you do this, you're committing to doing things in a better way. So the more that you're able to respond to your mistakes with that compassion and warmth, then you're much more able to make changes. You're able to be focused on the behavior and the next steps, the next behavior you're going to shift to. And that has a little bit to do with the concept of shame and guilt. So shame is the focus on self. I am bad. And then guilt is what I did was bad. And so when we think about how we coach ourselves through mistakes, if you do something you regret, let's go back to the example of you're a teacher and you don't speak very kindly to your class. Maybe they were really loud during an assembly. This happened to me once before, (laughs) several times before. Um, One year I'm thinking of in particular, I had a group of students who quite a few of them had emotion regulation Uh, skills that were lagging, let's just say. And so they were particularly noisy and um, had lots of movement during a school assembly when the expectation was for it to be quiet, calm, and not moving (laughs) when the speaker's trying to talk. Um, And my class was the one that had the rolling and the shoe looking and a lot of loudness was coming through. So anyway, um, I brought my kids back to the classroom and I didn't have the warm, responsive, problem-solving focused conversation. And my kids went to recess and I was thinking about the fact that, you know, I wasn't my best self. I was acting outside of my values. Normally, I'm really focused on being a problem solver and having compassion and being with them and having empathy for where they're coming from. And in that moment, as I was coming back, I was not experiencing that. 
And so luckily, one of my first thoughts was, oh my gosh, I'm not a good teacher. That's again, that's the shame focus, right? I am bad. And then I was able to snap out of it and say, wait a second, um, I am not a bad teacher. That's not true. But I did do something that I would like to make better. I'd like to make a different choice next time. So it's not to say, oh, just practice self-compassion. Um, don't worry about when you when you make mistakes because we're all human. Um, the part of that that's true is, yes, we're all human. And we want to be intentional about how we can do things differently. So my students came back in from recess and we sat down at the carpet and I said, Hey everyone, I would like to apologize to you. And it was so quiet. And a student said, um, can teachers do that? Like they were just confused. And I said, yes, I'm making a rule. Teachers can do this. And I said, you know, my brain, my brain felt a little mixed up today during the assembly. Cause I know that you had been sitting for so long and you had to be quiet. And that was actually a really long time for to ask five-year-olds and six-year-olds to be quiet for 30 minutes. Oh my gosh, that was a lot for your brains to handle. And so it was, it got a little bit loud and my brain started to feel mixed up because I really wanted to make sure that the speaker, the presenter knew that we were listening and that we wanted to learn from them. And so when my brain was mixed up, I did not use my normal, sweet teacher voice. I was a little bit grumpy. And so I want to say sorry for the tone that I had. And in the future, if my brain starts to feel mixed up, I will take calming breaths. I will do butterfly breaths or volcano breaths. And I will just let you know that we need to have a problem solving conversation and then do it when my brain feels better. And it was so sweet to see my students just respond so positively. Mrs. Keeley, it's okay. Um, we all get, you know, one student said all of our brains get mixed up sometimes and it was really beautiful. So I think the more that we really practice having that self-compassion, again, being mindful of our own suffering when I was able to recognize, yikes, that was outside of my values the way I had that follow-up with my class. When that leads us to being able to focus on the behavior and how we want to change it rather than just focusing on ourselves, which is the um, shame, but that guilt when you realize my behavior was not ideal. That's a catalyst for empathy and for accountability. So a way that I kept myself accountable in that moment was by having that follow-up conversation with my class, having that repair, and then ultimately making a plan for next time. And so that's something that I tried. And I certainly know that I saw my students starting to apologize and make those repairs because what we know is that children learn so much from what they see modeled. So we could tell them all day long that it's important to apologize. You need to say sorry. Um, you need to give a real sorry. <laughs> I know when parents or teachers say that is not a real apology when we tell kids you need to say you're sorry. So um, you could tell kids all day long that they need to have these authentic apologies. But if we are not apologizing to them, or if we're not apologizing um, to other people or talking about times that we've apologized, then we're not modeling for them. And kids learn when they see someone else do it, what gets thanked gets repeated, and what is done can get copied. And so we want children to be observing our own behaviors and then emulating that themselves. My first exposure to the concept of self-compassion was when I was a younger child. In fact, I remember, I believe it was about second or third grade, and I had gotten a bad score on a test, and this was not characteristic of what my typical academic outcomes were, and I remember being so upset and really feeling that negative 
self-talk. I was experiencing that, saying that, and my dad was so incredible. He was that kind, caring coach who came alongside me and really modeled what that's like to practice self-compassion. And he said, Lindsay, I want you to be kind to my best friend. And I looked kind of confused. I said, who's your best friend? And what do you mean I'm not being kind to to someone? I I don't know who your best friend is. And he said, that's you, Lindsay. And then he also had to clarify, you're my best friend tied with your mom and your brother. So he did say, Lindsay, you're my best friend. And he said, you need to be kind to yourself. When you make mistakes, it's important to learn from them and, and really to treat yourself with kindness. And this is something that he taught me when I was second, third grade. And throughout my life, he's given me these kind and gentle reminders of remember, Lindsay, be kind to yourself. And I just think that's one of the best things that I can do for myself when I'm learning something new, when I've made a mistake or I'm trying to figure something out, maybe when I've acted outside of my values, is just to tell myself, oh yeah, I need to be kind to myself. And not because it's being focused on myself and being self-indulgent, but rather when I'm kind to myself, I can make productive choices and ultimately I can be kinder to other people. And so how do we do this, right? How do we be more compassionate to ourselves and to others? So Kristen Neff outlines three components of self-compassion. And she says the three components of self-compassion are kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. And each play a crucial role in tender self-compassion. Kindness is the emotional attitude that allows us to comfort and soothe ourselves. Common humanity provides the wisdom to understand that we're not alone and to see that imperfection is part of the shared human experience. And mindfulness allows us to be present with our suffering so that we can validate our difficult feelings without immediately trying to fix or change them. And these three elements take a particular form when tender self-compassion is used to meet our needs with a loving, connected presence. And so even if you were to go back and take these concepts and just take the word self out, right? So number one is kindness. We can be kind to ourselves. Like my dad would say, Lindsay, be kind to yourself. If you are imagining a student or a child that you work with, um, take a moment and see, think about how you could coach them as a kind coach. Um, how can you treat them with kindness, right? How can you comfort them and allow them to borrow your calm, help them uh, feel a sense of calm and soothing by you just being warm and responsive. And then that common humanity, how can you remind them you're not alone? Imperfection, that's, that's just part of life, right? None of us are perfect. And just to give yourself permission to, to not feel like you have to have all these high expectations for yourself. And then that mindfulness, being present with our suffering and being present with the suffering of others. Brene Brown talks about how she just wanted to fix things. She wanted to sit down with her kids and she wanted just to tell them how to solve their problems and solve everything for them because it was uncomfortable for her to see her kids suffering. But what she learned when she was learning more about compassion is to be with someone and not try to fix it or change it in that moment, but the power of starting out by just being present with someone. And it's the feeling of sliding down the wall and now you're sitting down next to your child or that person who's going through a hard time and saying, I get it, I'm here for you. That totally sucks or that totally stinks as you're talking to a child and just being present. And I think being present with someone and with ourselves when there is this, difficulty, emotional pain, it takes a lot of vulnerability. 
because I think we can trick ourselves or try to convince ourselves that we can be perfect and that we can, we have this sense of control that we can control our environment. We can control our lives. And yet there's so many things that are outside of our control and being able to realize that I can show up every day. I can do my best. And sometimes things aren't going to line up as I wish they would. Sometimes our five-year plan or your 10-year plan, maybe it's your one week plan. Things get totally thrown off, which you would have if you had your way and your perfect little plan. Um, We don't ultimately have that much control, but what we do have is we have the way that we choose to respond to our situations, how we respond to others, and how we treat ourselves. I want to make a note here about self-esteem and how it differs from self-compassion. I used to think that self-esteem was amazing, that it was the goal for us to build self-esteem in our students. It said it on one of the first pages of the curriculum. This curriculum teaches kids how to solve problems regulate strong feelings, it builds self-esteem. And it's not to say that self-esteem is bad, but rather it's how you get your self-esteem. And so what self-esteem is, is a global evaluation of yourself, your self-worth. Am I good or am I bad? And self-esteem is often contingent upon your success. And you have to feel special and above average to have high self-esteem. And when we think about the concept of feeling above average in our culture, if someone says that you're just average, like if Thomas told me, you know what, Lindsay, you're just an average wife. Or if my dad said, Lindsay, you're an average daughter. (laughs) Um, In our culture, that seems like a negative thing, right? I would feel offended if Thomas said, hey, by the way, you're an average wife. Um, And so that's something in our society is that we have to feel special and above average. And this really can create really a toxic mindset and environment. And so when kids and when we focus on trying to make sure that kids have high self-esteem, sometimes that can lead to kids trying to puff themselves up. And in doing so, sometimes they put others down. Uh, Bullying is often feeling like you're stronger and more powerful than others. And to do so, you need to um, potentially push others down and, and in order to make yourself feel better and puff yourself up. And so again, it's not to say that self-esteem is a bad thing, but rather when we can shift our focus from building self-esteem, when we can get more curious about that and say, you know, one of the goals of positive choices is to have children develop really strong uh, self-compassion and practice positive self-talk. So when they do have difficulty, that they're able to say, um, I'm going to try better next time. It's normal to make mistakes. I'm just like everyone else. Everyone makes mistakes. I can make a plan for next time. And really making sure that children have this global evaluation that is based on being a human. I am worthy just the way that I am. It's not contingent upon my success or my mistakes. There's a great quote that Kristen has, and she says that self-esteem is a fair weather friend. It's there when things go well, but deserts us when things go badly. Just when you need it most, self-compassion is a perfect alternative to self-esteem. It doesn't require feeling better than others. It isn't contingent on other people liking you, and it doesn't require getting things right. So as we consider how we can make ourselves more self-compassionate, how we can teach our children to be more compassionate with themselves, we are going to find that we're creating a much healthier 
environment, whether that be in our classrooms, in our homes. And the more that we all practice this together, the more it's going to stick. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to this episode of the Positive Choices Podcast. It was so good for me personally to reflect upon the concept of self-compassion. This week, I'm personally going to practice reminding myself, hey, Lindsay, be kind to yourself. And in doing so, as I strengthen that self-compassion muscle, I know that it will allow me to be kinder to Thomas and other people in my sphere of influence. And next week, I am so excited. We're going to be talking about this question that I heard. It was posed once to me, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. Here's the question. Are people doing the best they can? I would love to know your thoughts in general. Do you think people are doing the best they can? So if you follow us on Instagram, we're at Positive Choices. We're going to have some polls going up this week about the concept of people either doing the best they can or not. And we're going to explore how our assumptions of others' intent how that influences our capacity for compassion. And so if you go ahead and follow us on Instagram, you will be able to take our polls. And so I am really excited to dive into that content next week. I hope that you have a wonderful week and I will talk with you soon.